This episode is brought to you in part by Palm Beach Atlantic University's fully online Certificate in Cultural Apologetics program. Learn how to show the reasonableness and desirability of the gospel from leading Christian philosophers. For more information, go to pbaapologetics.com. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. Which is no good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, apparently, and to be honest, this thing, this whole thing isn't clear to me yet, but apparently there's some team out west, name starts with an L, season usually ends in an L, that I guess won a few games in the playoffs recently. And so now all their little fans are asking me why I'm not talking about them on this show anymore. And really, to me, it's, it's a bad faith question because I think it's obvious. This show is about the gospel and politics. This is not a show about sports. And I think it points to a bigger problem within the church, which is y'all want us to talk about everything but the gospel. I will not sit here and waste your time or mine talking about the Lakers because they won a few games. That's not what this uh, podcast is for. So you can keep emailing me. You can, you can keep trying to harass me and humiliate me. But I'm going to spend my time on this podcast talking about what I want to talk about. I want to glorify God instead of trying to glorify your idols out there. So that's my response to you. That's as good as it's going to get. And so you, you better like it. Chris, any thoughts on uh, the the NBA playoffs? You know, the Bulls didn't even get, you know, I guess we did make the play in. So, you know, whatever. I literally found out right now, I asked you, Justin, whether the, uh, what happened in the game last night, because I made the wise decision to go to sleep because I wanted to wake up like you and focus on the gospel, prepare for this podcast, do things that are important for the kingdom. Before we get in, I did want to shout out our Miami chapter. South Florida chapter, Pastor Oshabar and I went down there, very, very far away from the West. I went down there and, and celebrated with uh, that group as they launched their chapter. So some really great folks down there. It was excellent to be with y'all. Met some some folks down there who listened faithfully just into the podcast, and uh, they were very grateful uh, for the work. So it was just a dope experience, and I, I wanted to shout them out too. Awesome. Yeah, shout out to the South Florida chapter. I'm sorry I couldn't be there, but from what I understand, Chris and Oshabar held it down and are really excited about what's happening out there. I think this is our 14th or 15th chapter. Uh, We are growing. If you want a chapter in your area, man, you got to hit us up. Holla at us at engageand at andcampaign.org. And we can start looking at whether or not we should bring a chapter to your city because you got to get involved. It's got to be more than just listening to the podcast or liking tweets on Twitter, right, guys? So let's get involved with that. On a more serious note, though, one of the issues that we covered last week was about the Hunter Biden laptop 
CIA agents, you know, intelligence agents who testify before Congress secretly. And one thing that I didn't mention, and I want to clear this up, is I didn't mention that the testimony of the CIA agent was based on the interpretation or what Jim Jordan took, Congressman Jim Jordan took from that interview. Jim Jordan is not somebody that this podcast has been a favorite of this podcast. Let me say that. Let me not insult the man, but he's not someone that has been a favorite of this podcast. He is someone who I think in many instances is more creative than credible, more provocative than actually giving something that's probative. So we should have mentioned that that point of view was based on not the transcript, but was based on what Jim Jordan pulled from the transcript. And I do think that's very important. So, hey, we always want to make sure that we are transparent. We want to make sure if we don't do something right or get something wrong that we let you know. And that's what I'm doing now. So hopefully you can appreciate that. As always, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. And also all of you that give on Patreon.com slash Church Politics. If you give there, you can hear premium episodes. We'll be talking a little bit deeper about maternal mortality with our friend Sherilyn this episode. If you want to hear about that and the role that that plays in the abortion conversation, you need you need to get on our Patreon and become a patron, rather, to hear that conversation. And it will be a good one. So y'all know what it is. Grab your Bible. Get your mind right and prepare to think, not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. As many of you may know, we recently launched, and I'm really excited about this, we recently launched our Invisible Institution newsletter. It's a newsletter that's really trying to help faith leaders, pastors, and others be equipped to engage the public square. So we have some great writers, including Chris, John Richards, Jasmine Holmes was part of, of this one, Amos Jones, and, and others that are, that are going to be writing some stuff for us to equip you in the public square. One of those articles, as I mentioned, was from Chris. And so I'll have Chris kind of introduce that ar- article and we'll kind of discuss it. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, it's a, a, a great newsletter. You all should definitely go subscribe to it. I looked at this issue, you know, the wealth gap in America has been widening at a sort of alarming rate. So this is according to the Federal Reserve, according to the Federal Reserve Consumer Finances survey, the wealthiest 1% of Americans hold roughly 30% of the nation's total wealth, while the bottom percent of the population, bottom 50%, holds only 2%. And this glaring disparity is threatening the very fabric of our society and impacting almost every area of American life, not the least of which is housing, uh, where there's a full-blown crisis just in developing all across the country, and it's mostly going unnoticed and mostly going unaddressed. So this wealth gap and its attendant impacts on housing and other areas of life are, in many ways, one of the most important issues facing our society right now. But then it's also a tale as old as time. And so what I wrote about in this inaugural edition of the Invisible Institution newsletter is how we read in Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 5, and we find this account of wealthy citizens exploiting their less fortunate brethren amidst an economic crisis. And then you look around today, and we witness a very similar story unfolding in the American housing market, because you have institutional investors, capital finance folks, who are buying up single-family homes in large numbers and turning them into rental properties. And this is pushing the dream of home ownership further out of the grasp of ordinary families. 
Uh, and what I point out in the article is that pushing home ownership out of reach for average Americans is dangerous and, in my opinion, unjust. Home ownership, this ability simply to own the real estate where your family builds its life, is in the United States today, just like it was in Jerusalem in 450 BC, the most democratized asset within our society. Home ownership is the best and in many if not most cases, the only way for families to achieve financial stability and even think about building generational wealth. Uh, and so over the past decade, as institutional investors have increasingly bought up these single-family homes and even rental properties, we've seen the families, regular families, sort of be pushed out of this, this home-buying market. Recent policy decisions from the Federal Reserve, increasing interest rates particularly, amidst high inflation and unemployment is also exacerbating. All right, because what you have now is that mortgage lending is more difficult to access because the interest rates are higher. Real income because of inflation is lower for families. And so all of these things combining are having a far-reaching effect that will impact not only this generation, but multiple generations to come. And what I pointed out in the article is that an environment in which the rich can leverage their resources to more aggressively operate in the housing market is, in my view, an environment of economic exploitation, uh, because economic exploitation is not just when the wealthy unfairly profit from the work of the poor, but it is also when the economically advantaged profit from the distress of the economically disadvantaged. And so this story is one that sort of gets my book cooking. In fact, the, the Bible says in Nehemiah, and I point this out in the article, Nehemiah actually records that when he heard uh, the outcry of his people, uh, that he became angry. Uh, and I think that if there are things in our society that should stir our righteous indignation, this prospect of literally generations of Americans being locked out of the housing market should definitely be on the list. It's on my list. It's very angering to me. And I hope that, the, that we'll see the church in a lot of these States and cities, especially where this, this stuff is concentrated, really begin to step up and demand at the local and the federal level legislation that, that slows this down because we will see if we let this unfold, it'll be much more difficult to get this property back from permanent capital than it will be to prevent them from acquiring it in the first place. Let me tell you, Chris, I hope everybody listening to us reads this article because it is a very good article, a very thorough article. And one that I think Christians need to be aware of, whether we want to hear it or not, the Bible explicitly deals with economic exploitation. It speaks in one way or another in different places to power and policies that leave certain classes without fair wages and affordable housing. If America's wage gap isn't clear to you, if you don't see it, then you need to step out of your bubble and expand your circle. Because the amount of people that I know who go to work every day but can't afford housing in the city, and this is not just in Atlanta, in cities in general, is ridiculous. And let me tell you about why where you live matters. For people who earn low wages, they need to be closer to cities because cities in, in general usually have more resources, right? More jobs and so on, right? Better busing, all that stuff. And many of the pre people, Chris, that I see who work every day but can't afford, uh, can't get affordable housing have degrees, too. 
Some of them don't. Some of them do. So it just tells you how our system is failing people. Now, somebody's not going to work or they don't want to work. Okay, that's a different kind of conversation. I'm talking about people who work hard every day that can barely find somewhere to stay. And when they do find it, it's usually pretty far from the city, which means they're separated from a lot of different resources. Now, from what I can tell, and you mentioned some of this, Chris, the problem stems from soaring housing prices and wages that are too low, low almost to the extent of injustice. For some reason, Chris, and I know we all believe in the invisible hand of the market like it's the Holy Spirit, but for some reason in America, everything is inflated except the wages of workers. And the question that one has to start asking is, can the market be trusted to set the wage when the worker has so little power? Has that really worked for America? I know, I know that's the orthodoxy. I know that's what we're supposed to say about the economy and all that. How has that really worked for us? And that's not suggesting that the government would do an excellent job, but we do need to give more power to the workers so that they can negotiate and have a larger hand in what's being said, play a larger role in the outcome. Maybe is a better way to put it. Because for a significant amount of Americans, Chris, the economy just isn't working. And that has a major impact on family. And I can go through a list of reasons why all those things should matter to Christians, should matter to people who want to imitate Jesus and want to be compassionate and want to love their neighbor in a real way. Now, there's a lot of people who provide a lot of different answers to this. One thinker who I'm just kind of getting familiar with and just recently, again, started paying attention to is, is Michael Lind. He wrote a book called Hell to Pay, How the Suppression of Wages is Destroying America. He says that we have a low wage, high welfare economy. We use welfare programs to subsidize low wage jobs. He believes that we need to empower workers and push pro-family policy. He says that the pro-worker agenda must treat families, not individuals, as the basic units of public policy. Now, I haven't been tuned in to Lynn long enough to endorse his work. That's not what this is. But we always want to bring you people who are thinking about things differently. And you and me, you know, we, we believe welfare is necessary. It's something that we need. But I think, and I don't want to speak for you, but I think as we've spoken before, we would rather have people have opportunities to have well-paying jobs than to kind of come on the back end and just create more, you know, more welfare programs. Like the idea would be to have a more inclusive economy. Since we don't, you kind of get more welfare programs. But I thought one of the interesting things, Chris, about what Michael Lynn says is that we shouldn't really always depend on these very technocratic solutions, that we really shouldn't always depend on the bureaucracy to correct an economy that's just not working. He says the answer is not the bureaucracy to step in or just focus on policies that can put more money into the welfare system, but actually to empower workers. Okay, now these things aren't mutually exclusive. I want to emphasize that. But to me, it seems it would be more important or it would be best. The best case scenario was that you empower workers and raise wages so that you wouldn't have to kind of create more welfare that's just keeping people afloat. Again, support those programs. But that doesn't mean that they should come at the expense of actually saying, no, we need to empower workers so that they can get better wages on the front end. What are your thoughts about that, Chris? That's exactly it. And it's something I, I, I mentioned in the article, right? Like as believers and people with a, a biblical mindset, when we approach public policy, 
you got to step back and say, all right, God, who is all wise, when he's setting up the nation of Israel, right at the, the, in the same movement where he's giving them the law and giving them this, this very wise spiritual and moral code uh, that has informed society for, I mean, millennia. He also says, we're going to take every household and make sure that they have a track of land where they can raise their family on that land. They can create economic energy on that land, and then they can bequeath that land to future generations so that they have a place to build from. This is God doing this in the scriptures. And so when we detach families from that, we create a, a very difficult problem for families. Like you, you mentioned, when families are pushed far away from jobs and cities and that type of thing, now you have parents, most of the time because of the low wages, both parents having to travel more, to get to and from work, having to work more jobs. Now they're spending less time with children and doing the work that, that mom and dad have to do at home to, to raise children. I also haven't been that much engaged with Lynn's writing. One thing that you mentioned, Justin, that has become a fairly steady drumbeat for me and is a really important sort of fault line in our policy environment is, are we going to make the individual or the family and household the basic building block of society uh, and that basic unit that we look at when we think about public policy? Because if we, if we do that, a lot of these things become much more clear. When you think about it in, in a family context, you have to think about not just what does this wage do to this individual's ability to access the clothes that they want to buy or whatever, but how is this impacting their roles within the household and within the family? Is this wage making this man a better or a worse father to the children that are inside of that household and are going to grow up into adults and come out into our society? That's not a small question. I think it's one that's been skipped a lot in our policy environments, but it's not a small question. I think it impacts this in a huge way. Now, he also, I'll say this from, from my reading, he also seems to challenge something that we've actually promoted, which is the tax credit. Yeah. Again, from the perspective that it's a Band-Aid on a system that just isn't working. And so the system needs to be changed to empower workers. Yeah. And so not, that, not that it's terrible within the present system, but yeah. that it just perpetuates the system that we're already kind of struggling with. Yeah, and I, I, I'm, I'm interested in, in reading the book. I, I listened to a, a podcast where he was discussing it. I'm certainly interested in, in reading the book because I, I, I don't think that those two things are in perfect tension. And I'm not sure that, that Lynn feels this way. I don't know because I haven't read the book. But yeah, I, I think I definitely favor if you say like, what's better to have an EITC or I've talked and written about a basic income uh, and lots of things. Uh, but all of those things are sort of solutions to the fundamental problem of, you know, and, and maybe it's something that, that I've kind of more given up on <laughs> intellectually, but how, how do you actually just cause the corporations and, and the businesses that are capturing the profits from economic activity to actually just share those profits more fairly with all of the people who are helping to create that economic activity? And again, it goes back to me, though, back to that question of like, where are the basic building blocks? Because if it's, if it's just this great man or great woman who built this great institution 
And then they can make the argument that they're going to take all of the resources. Uh, folks who create this economic activity and not only are the people who are working there sacrificing for the company, those children, all that time that dad is at work or mom is at work, those children are sacrificing. If a parent is at home, that parent is sacrificing. And so even if you look at, if you, if you change your view of policy, even those questions begin to be met with different answers, uh, even about how we think about who's creating kind of economic energy within the economy. So I, I think it's just, that's, that's a really, really critical question. I know we're talking about housing, but that, that question of, of you know, what, what I call a family-centered economics is a very key question. Because I think if, if you change that frame, a lot of our conversations about the economy are begin to change. Yeah. And these are just things we need to wrestle with. So even Chris and I are willing to change an opinion or kind of revise something that was said before to see what's best. Because a lot of the what I see here is one thing we're asking is what is helpful in the present system? That's very different than what is the solution. And so not everything that's helpful in the present system is actually the solution. And I think if we want to get to solutions, it may be have to have to be things that are a little more drastic. The tough part about all this is while I do think these corporations should be taxed more in many cases, the truth of the matter is they can always go somewhere else. And so it is hard to go too far on the taxation. That's why, you know, as I listen to Lind and others, empowering the workers more kind of does seem to make a little bit, bit more sense because all that happens otherwise is everybody else gets taxed to support workers who just aren't making enough money. Now, I'll say this, and this may bring some argument. This is just my opinion. And maybe Chris may disagree with this. But while I see certain aspects of certain economic systems supported in the Bible, certain aspects of the system, I don't think that God prescribes either capitalism nor socialism as presently constituted. You hear Christians say, basically, capitalism is biblical. With how capitalism has been manifest in this system, do you really want to put that on God? Do you think how it how it is constituted now is what God meant for it to be above any other system, even though it could turn out like this? And if I look at other countries that have socialist governments, the truth of it is about a lot of social, socialist governments is they have like a two tiered economy. You have the regular people have their economy and then the people who run businesses and are cool with the folks in power have their own. They're, they're not subject to all the things that everybody else is. That's just the truth. You can deal with it or you cannot deal with it. What do you think? I know this is a whole different subject, but it just came to mind. And I wanted to see what you thought about that, because you do hear a lot of people saying the Bible you know, promotes socialism or the Bible promotes capitalism. I think you got to be careful with that just because an aspect of a system might be mentioned. Go ahead. Yeah, you're absolutely. I, I agree with that. I, I think that there are aspects of these various sort of like economic systems. I don't think that the Bible endorses an economic system. I do think that the Bible discusses economic justice, and that should be the goal, along right? with work and yeah. what happens when you work and don't work. Right. right? Which is so yeah, and I, I I think all those things fall under the frame of economic justice. I probably shouldn't throw that word around in contemporary times quite as easily. I think that, you know, if, if your concept of justice like mine is the right ordering of things, then work is part of a just economic system because those who want to benefit economically and not work when they can are actually being unjust. But again, we're doing like maybe six or seven different segments right here. We have to acknowledge or focus on what the Bible does actually discuss. And I don't feel as much of a need to brand it 
just make sure that folks are okay. And so there are a lot of conversations. I, I, I will just point back to what I do think is an urgent matter. And it's the reason why I wrote the article. And that's that right now, today, in the housing market, one in every seven home purchases in the 40 largest cities in the United States is a permanent capital, some sort of permanent capital institutional operation. Something needs to happen urgently, at least to press pause on this so that we can think about how we order this thing. Because, you know, as I, as I referred to in Nehemiah, it was a slightly different system. Nehemiah is able just to go to these wealthy folks in Jerusalem and say, y'all got to give these people their land back. It won't be nearly that easy in the United States once corporations own 25, 30, 40, 50% of a family housing it'll be hard for somebody to be the Nehemiah and come to those corporations and, and and then say, you all have to give this land back. And so I do think it's urgent to press pause on the whole thing so that there can be an opportunity to really think through how this is going to play out going into the future. No, that's good, man. We ran over a little on this segment, but I think folks will like it. I think it'll be enjoyable. Good conversation. Check out some of those books. Keep thinking about this, man. And, and don't get so caught up in one way of thinking that you ignore other solutions. We will be right back with a conversation about regulating pornography or access to pornography on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction, the AND Campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend Christopher Butler. Chris, this is a, a tough subject. But one thing I think Christians need to be honest about is that porn is ravaging us and our community just like everyone else's. Uh, we, we, we have in the church those struggles just as much as anybody, everybody else does, from what I can tell. And, and we need to be honest and transparent about that. Pornography is causing divorces. It's generally distorting sex. It's distorting the male and female relationship. It's easy accessibility is bringing all kinds of perverted images just a keystroke away from our children. It's linked to sex trafficking and the exploitation of children. It's now branded, since some of these major case, you know, Supreme Court cases and all that, it's now branded as kind of a freedom of speech issue. But in more than one way, Chris, I think it's placed Americans in bondage. 
Well, some states are stepping in to make porn less accessible. Louisiana, for example, has passed a law that forces online publishers of porn to verify the user is an adult. Before people can view the content, they'll have to prove they're over 18. According to the New York Times, Louisiana is at the forefront of a sweeping national push to insulate young people from potentially harmful content by requiring certain online services to bar or limit minors on their platforms. As a result, people in many other states may soon find that they, too, need to use credentials like digitized driver's licenses to access a host of services, including popular social media apps. The proposed restrictions introduced by at least two dozen states over the last year could alter not only online experiences of children and adolescents, they could also remake the Internet for millions of adults ushering in a tectonic cultural shift to a stricter age-gated online world. Utah and Arkansas recently enacted laws that would require social media apps like TikTok and Instagram to verify their users' ages and obtain parental consent before granting accounts to minors. According to, I think it was Fox 13 in Salt Lake City, Pornhub, one of the largest adult content websites on the internet, has blocked people in Utah from viewing the site in an apparent protest of a new law forcing stricter age verification measures. I don't think I agree with Pornhub on much of anything, but I think they should really block everyone. I think they should protest every state. If this is the way they're going to react. And, and here's here's their statement of why they're kind of protesting and blocking people in Utah. As you may know, your elected officials in Utah are requiring us to verify your age before allowing you access to our website. While safety and compliance are at the forefront of our mission, uh, giving your ID card every time you want to visit an adult platform is not the most effective solution for protecting our users. And in fact, will put children and your privacy at risk. My question to you, my first question to you, Chris, is how does age verification put children at risk? I think I'm going to let Pornhub make that argument because I, yeah, I'm going to let them make that argument. Okay. Second question. Do you support these regulations and why do you think they're so, so important, if so? So I totally support these regulations. This is, in in one sense, it's a similar balancing test to the one that we're doing in the gun control debate, because it's this balancing test between the sort of privacy rights of adults and weighing that against taking action to to protect the safety and well-being of our children. But in this argument, while I think it's very similar, the sort of tribal roles are reversed, right? Where more progressive crowd is like, hey, what about privacy and speech? And the conservative is saying, well, let's protect our children. In some ways, it's a similar balancing test. And so I know where I come down on that in every instance, because to me, in either case, we're not really talking about infringing on your right to do something. You might be giving up a little bit of your of the convenience of doing it in a very secret way but you can still do it and i, I don't think that this is I, I think that this is even less of an argument because we are talking about porn you know whereas like in what world is the right of an adult to consume 
porn more important than protecting our children. And so you got to look at the scope. Even some of the articles that I saw, I was a little disappointed that folks didn't really lean into, like, first off, porn sites give more visitors monthly than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined, right? This is a huge, huge, huge problem. And one uh, article that I saw uh, suggests that 49% of college-age males uh, in one survey uh, said that they saw porn for the first time before they were 13 years old. That's almost half of all college-age American males self-reported that they saw porn before they were 13. So this is a huge problem. I mean, it's large, large in scope. The impact of the American College of of Pediatricians say that pornography is associated with emotional and psychological problems, physical health outcomes, increased rates of depression, anxiety, violent behavior, sexual promiscuity, violent sexual proclivities. Like, So this is a massive, massive problem, very, very large in scope, very, very deep and negative impact. And I don't know a world in which it's a higher priority to protect an adult's right. And let, let me not even air quote it. You know, this is America. You got it right. But I don't know a world in which protecting an adult's right to access porn is more important than protecting children when the impact is that large. In my opinion, Chris, we have to regulate it. That shouldn't be a question. I, I think the science behind what it does to alter our minds, to alter how we interact with one another is clear, right? So if that matters to you, then, then, you know, we should. But I also think that it's something that we can get a critical mass of even progressives to, to move on. I mean, there are progressives who are saying, yeah, this is the accessibility of porn is a problem. So for our view, I know we have some listeners who don't do anything unless progressives OK it. I think it may be OK for you guys to say something about this now, because even some progressives are saying so it's safe. You can stand up and say that porn is bad. OK. But, but in, in a real way, I think this should be a bipartisan move to say we have to put restrictions on this because, yes, freedom is important, but nobody's really taking away the freedom just because they're saying you have to do a few more things to make sure that people who shouldn't be, have ac- access to it don't. And there's so much more that we can do, but also and, and we should do it. The truth of the matter also is that it's a spiritual matter, too, and the church is going to have to deal with that spiritual matter. Because with the web, the idea that folks are going to be completely stopped from getting a hold of pornography if they want to, if kids or whoever, if they really want to get a hold of it, we should make it harder. But to make it impossible, I don't, you know, I don't know, I don't know if that that's going to happen. One thing that, and it's a big deal. Uh, one thing that my pastor said that was like, whoa, that's that's something to think about is you can look at your Bible on your phone if you want to, or on your tablet. That's fine. Be very careful though of using for a Bible, the same thing that you use to look at porn. That was a Mac. Yeah, that was a mic drop to me. Something for folks to think about, man. So no judgment, man. We want folks to feel, you know, feel like this is something they can talk about and say, hey, we've got to get over this because it is plaguing us and it's a threat to all our children. So we have to be serious about it. Chris, I'll let you take us out. Yeah, just on that spiritual side. I share with, with my congregation and I'll share on this podcast. I have covenant eyes on all my devices and my accountability partner has access. You know, can log in anytime to check out my covenant eyes. And that's just for accountability sake. Like the, uh, what is covenant eyes? I, I've never so heard of that. Covenant eyes is a, is like a, is a computer app that kind of attracts your online activity. The goal of it is really if you have accountability relationships, 
then your accountability partner can can log in and see either activity and they'll see if you shut it down for any period of time they can see that you shut it down um and so it's a it, it's technology is only as good as your accountability relationships but if you have healthy accountability relationships it's a helpful tool in this particular space and so i i, I do suggest it you know so i want to point that out and i, I do want to point out for progressives you know, because I, I hang out in that world a little bit, that when we're talking about these privacy rights, we, we have to always look at, are we really talking about the rights of individuals to consume pornography or the rights of corporations to create it and sell it to children? The online porn industry has an annual revenue. It's very difficult to place it because of sort of definitional concerns, what is adult content, and then a lot of the companies are private, not public. So that figure could be as high as $97 billion a year, uh, but even a very conservative and verifiable estimate from Quartz Business Magazine is $15 billion a year. That would mean that online porn brings in more money every year than all of Hollywood. Like Hollywood as a whole does like $11 billion a year, and online porn does $15 billion. So for the, the progressive mind, there's a huge sort of like corporate aspect to this. That's what I'm really interested to, to find out from Pornhub, how many people are actually calling their legislators and lobbying for their, their Pornhub account. In yeah. Utah. And take account of those legislators that respond to Pornhub and feel pressured by that. Just, just write the name down and, and, and put it in your back pocket for later on. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, with Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend Christopher Butler. Chris, you've perhaps heard of The Godfather of Soul, which is James Brown. Probably heard of The Godfather, the movie, where The Godfather is played by Marlon Brando. But there's also a Godfather of artificial intelligence, and his name is Jeffrey Hinton. Hinton, who is 75, announced his resignation from Google in a statement to the New York Times, saying that he now regrets his work. He told the BBC that some of the dangers of AI chatbots were scary. In fact, quite scary. He said right now, they're not more intelligent than us, as far as I can tell, but I think they soon may be. He fears that bad actors could use AI for bad things. For instance, they could give robots what they call sub goals, like getting more power, which could be used against humans. IA robots could also be used on the battlefield, and that's one of his other concerns. The people advancing the potential, the potential of AI for profit haven't done enough to control it, Chris. And I think that's the biggest issue. We're, we're trying, you know, there's this battle between Google and Microsoft and all these other folks to advance this technology. 
without taking the time to actually control it once it advances past a certain point. Some believe that it could be used to supplant humanity. Some folks have even gone as far as saying that it could be the end of humanity. Chris, I'm not that deep into this type of technology. I probably don't understand as much as I would like to understand about it. But this seems concerning to me. And what I do know about technology in general and where we are right now is that in a number of areas, and we talked about this before, technology has surpassed the ethics that need to go along with technology. And when you're talking about artificial intelligence that could surpass our intelligence, that could in so many ways in our digitized world could undermine our society, we have to be concerned. And for somebody who's the godfather of artificial intelligence, so-called, to say, hey, man, we need to stop. We need to slow this down ASAP. It's something that we need to be listening to. The other thing is there was, was a group, including, I think, Elon Musk, who said, hey, we need to slow this down or stop this advancement of AI until we have better ethics and have better controls in place. Because what some people are saying, where while you can kind of figure out if somebody's trying to create weapons of mass destruction, somebody could be going further and far farther with AI and you might not be able to stop it. The sad thing and the thing that worries me, though, Chris, and I'll hand it to you, is I don't know that our political system and our leaders in that system are willing or able to do what needs to be done to get, I, I guess we could say, get out in front of this, but to catch up with this. What are your thoughts, Chris? I think you actually just left it at the spot where where I mostly wanted to uh, to speak into this, it, it is most concerning because of the the sense of corporate capture in our political system right now, and it, it does not seem that we have the kind of force of character and moral courage that it takes to make corporations pause on the development of what seems like very lucrative technology. I just would urge people if you haven't like played around with Chat GPT, like. Check that out. Earlier this week, it was my my 10-year-old's birthday. Uh, We took him to the Museum of Science and Industry here in Chicago. And you look at some of the stuff that is on display there. And then you think about the fact that all this stuff was available to us, ChatGPT, probably even the stuff that's in the museum, is orders of magnitude beyond what we already see in in general public. And, And that will give you pause. And if there's even a slight chance um, that the warnings that we're hearing are accurate, we should at least have a conversation, press pause. But we just we don't have the right mix of stuff right now at the highest levels of government to force these kind of meaningful conversations. And and it's not just in government; it's in the government, it's in our media, it's it's really in all of the institutions that are supposed to help. Uh, and step in in these moments, really force very serious conversations. And we've just become very unserious in a lot of these spaces in the public square. And then it also seems, Chris, to be honest, that while we need to regulate, we need to get the smartest guys in the room. Somebody said this isn't isn't my dad. We need to get the smartest guys in the room and figure out how to control this. But even then, just like we were talking about with porn, how much can you really control it once Pandora's box has been opened? And so it almost seems like even with this, there's a spiritual element or at least a reliance on on the spiritual world to to come through on this, because this is bigger than us. It's bigger than our politics. I don't know how you stop some mad scientist in whatever country, in the basement of his house, in whatever country 
from taking this as far as possible. And I keep saying this. I know y'all probably think I'm crazy. Call me a kook. In this overly digitized world, if you have artificial intelligence that is more advanced than us, I mean, to even think of what that could mean and what the consequences of that are, is just kind of shakes you. But we've got to try. We've got to try to figure it out. But here again, the church is going to have to speak to people's hearts because regulation needs to be done. But we may be too far down the road to completely prevent something really tragic from happening here. And, and we don't want to ever come with just doom and gloom, but we want to be real. I mean, this is this is no joke. This is some serious stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned a, a uh, an exhortation from your pastor in the last segment. And I think, you know, just simple things like, do you have a Christian Bible, like in print format? Because we do live in a world now where some AI attached to one of these, you know, corporations and, and not you don't even need to have like a malicious engineer, just like a mistake somewhere in the in the technology. You just snatch all the Bibles off the Internet, you know? <laughs> It's like, and you don't got it, like, unless you have it in, in a print form. And again, not just trying to like paint doom and gloom, but I'm, I'm talking to you like, this is like, I'm talking about like maybe five or six years ago in conversation with folks who worked like next door to the president of the United States and worked at the uh, executive level in communications companies and literally said to me, like, if you're concerned about the government when it comes to like privacy and technology and invasion, you're concerned about the wrong group, right? It's, it is these these communications technology corporations that are developing technologies that you don't even want to think about how powerful these things are. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we, we need to pray. We need to really like seek the Lord and we need to enter the public square with courage and seriousness uh, and really discipline ourselves to understand that most of what we're getting from, you know, kind of like mass media, political parties and, and all that set, it's unserious. It is a distraction from most of the uh, the real things that are happening in the lives of people. That's real. Well, guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Some heavy topics, but I think some stuff that we just need to know and we need to deal with. And you have the power as a collective to push people to deal with them. So let's make sure that we do that. And Camp, you know what it is. There's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. Well, how about you? Dear Lord.